You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with William J. Simmons. William, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is so fun. <laughs> this is fun. This is our third talk, and you know, uh, as as conversations progress, I think I think they get deeper somehow and uh, and more intimate. So I'm I'm really excited to talk about. Uh, your book, Queer Formalism, The Return, and, uh, and discuss it a bit. Uh, to begin with, this is a book that, um, that is actually a return to a text you wrote that seems um, like you were a bit of a savant at a very young age. This was a, a text you wrote as a sophomore that you're returning to. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, you really did your homework. Thank you. <laughs> <sighs> Um, so, so to talk a little bit about this, and, and what I think is also, you know, when, when preparing for interviews or thinking about this, there's always, um, or sometimes there's an elephant in the room, and, and I think in this case, it's the fact that I'm a cisgender white male, and I'm going to be talking to you about this, and, um, and so I, I want to just read a short uh, bit from your book and, and address that a little bit. Uh, On page 23, you write, queer and feminist art, indeed all art dealing with non-normative bodies, have uneasy relationships to interpretation since these bodies are so often laid forcibly bare to examination and interrogation. The heteropatriarchy oftentimes uses interpretation, critique, and or deconstruction in order to immobilize and silence the other by turning them into pure discourse so that actual flesh and actual experiences can be ignored. So, you know, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but, but to me that also addresses, like, what does it mean to be interviewed by someone like me as, as opposed to um, someone else with a non-normative body? I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, in a very real sense part of the problem. My, as, as much as I'm a, a listener, I have all kinds of, brainwashed and fixed notions about this. And, and, and I read a lot, you know, I, I just read, you know, glitch feminism and all kinds of things, but it doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that, that there is some kind of uh, fixed, uh, you know, way of seeing that, that I've grown up with that I don't want to say it's, it's not possible to overcome, but, but I, but I think that's true. So, so just to address that line a little bit um, and, 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 and what it means to be interviewed by a cisgender white male. Um, sure, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> you know, the first thing I would say is that um, <laughs> in a sense, as two white, I, well, yeah, as two white people um, in the art world, you know, we're both, already sort of part of the problem in a whole other sense um, because of the sort of, um, you know, the privilege um, that, that, that we enjoy as a result of, of whiteness, especially, you know, in a context like the art world that, you know, is its whole other, you know, uh, den of privilege as it were. But, um, but you know, I think part of, <clears throat> part of the goal of that, book and, and you know thank you for for reading it and for you know being attentive to it um, 
part of the goal of that was to sort of make these statements about what queer art is and what queer art isn't, um, you know, what queer uh, theory and discourse are and what they aren't. But I think another goal of it um, that I hope came across in sort of, you know, who I wrote about and, and how I wrote about them was that, in a sense, these, these topics are accessible to everyone. Um, I think there is, I, I think that queer art can, can give different tools um, to everybody, you know, irrespective of if one identifies as queer or not, or trans or not, or white or not, or any, whether one identifies as normative or otherwise. Um, I think queer and feminist art offer tools for everybody. Uh, of course, those tools resonate um, differently for different people. Um, <clears throat> but I think I wanted to be very aware as I was writing, one, that I didn't come across as very, you know, sanctimonious. Uh, because one, you know, I, I do benefit from white privilege. I do... Um, you know, benefit from identifying as a man, et cetera, et cetera, all these things. And I'm not necessarily in the place to be, uh, you know, on a soapbox about certain things. I think white allyship is a really cringy thing that we've seen a lot of in the last few years in particular in the art world. But <clears throat> what I wanted to keep in mind was that, you know, even Gen Z folks who are not that much younger than me they're, they they probably think that I'm so out of it and I'm so problematic, uh, you know. It's just to say that things change and accelerate and, and return and, and, and there's no predicting it and there's no predicting, you know, any one person's relationship to, to discourse. Um, and queer and feminist discourse are always changing. Um, so I think your point is important in the sense that, you know, um, there is always something to learn by opening up the conversation. Um, and, you know, maybe someone who's 18 read my book and was like, this is garbage, you know? Um, and I think it's useful for all of us to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's, and that's kind of one of the aspects of this book that, I love because this book is, you know, about about theory. It's 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 academic, and yet there's this kind of personal sense um, of of not being sanctimonious, as you're as you're saying, and that 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 drew me in, and I imagine draws the reader in. Um, to quote one more thing from here, actually, I'm going to quote two more things because I've really dog-eared this book. Um, you said, in my initial essay on Lawler, does Louise Lawler make you cry? I surmise that everyone wants to substitute a picture of themselves for one of Meryl Streep or some other glamorous surrogate because we all want to be beautiful. A prominent queer feminist writer read it and noted that she, in fact, does not want to be beautiful. Fair enough. My sexist Warholian presumptuousness here should be questioned. Um, Let's talk about what does that mean, sexist, Warholian, presumptuous? And you can take that anywhere you want. But I was kind of fascinated with that. And, and it also, it, I think, dovetails in 
a bit into what we were just talking about and to kind of, how do you get a perspective on this? How, how do you step back again? Another layer to recognize your own presumptuousness. But, um, but yeah, well, sexists were holy in presumptuousness. Let's start there. What does that, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the funny thing is that, um, I mean, this is such a generative exercise for me because I, I, I did a reading from Queer Formalism for um, a book uh, for a, a podcast that Skylight in Los Angeles did um, with my friend Emily Wells, who's another amazing art writer. But um, other than that, I haven't reread anything, and um, you know, it wasn't published all that long ago. But you know. I think, one, I just don't have the self-esteem to reread anything that I uh, wrote ever again. Um, and that's just kind of a rule. So, you know, I'm glad to revisit that because I almost forgot that I wrote it. Um, but, you know, I think for me, you know, I was so <clears throat> I was so taken aback when that, prominent queer feminist writer said that to me because, you know, of course there are people, everyone relates differently to culture. And, you know, I think I wanted to write from a very universal place. Um, and so it was problematic in the sense that, you know, um, yeah, not everyone wants to look like Meryl Streep. Um, that was referencing uh, a work of Louise Lawler's where, I, uh, where a magazine asked her for a headshot and she sent in uh, a picture of Meryl Streep, um, which is, you know, so brilliant and funny. Um, but yeah, the idea that, that someone else could not, uh, might not relate to that in the same way. Um, the same prominent queer feminist writer also said, that she sort of had no desire to meet her heroes, which I think is sort of the entirety of what my work is about in a certain sense. Um, so I got to thinking about all of that. And I think the, the example for me as someone who does um, sort of make universal assumptions, especially regarding women um, and sort of a gay projection onto women is Warhol because so much of his work has to do <clears throat> with tragic women or beautiful women or beautiful women who become tragic, you know, Edie Sedgwick, Elizabeth Taylor, or whatever, you know. Um, and I think his relationship to images of women and his sort of, um, sort of ownership of it, you know, Marilyn Monroe, very tragic, you know, Almost when, when I think of Marilyn, I think of Warhol's, you know, silk screens of hers, and I'm sure that's the case for many other people. Um, and I guess he became exemplary for a certain kind of gay misogyny um, that I think is very uh, rampant in, you know, gay circles and in, you know, recent gay painting in particular. Um, but yeah, that was what I meant by that, that Warhol sort of saw women uh, and images of women as sort of interchangeable, as sort of a symbol, a symbol for himself as something that he could just sort of manipulate um, 
And I think that that kind of gay misogyny is something that I that I want to try to interrogate um, generally. That's so interesting, you know, especially the idea of uh, talking to someone who says, I don't want to be beautiful. That's not what I'm aspiring to, if, I, if I'm understanding that correctly. And I don't want to meet my heroes. You know, that's, that's one of those statements that's so... Um, not quite counterintuitive, but it just seems like how could you how could you have a perspective that different, right? The the the, the desire to be uh, to be beautiful and to meet your heroes seems like something that um, that every artist that, that 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 every person would want to some degree, and and in a in a sense, as as we've been talking, it's it's also uh, obviously something for for you to interrogate further uh, as, as you're saying and, and are doing in this in this text but it it also points to the difficulty of really understanding another person's point of view to some extent right i mean that but that's still a little a little mind bending for me to think you know um that this prominent feminist really meant that um like really you know i i'd want to say i i are you are you just saying that or you really don't want to meet your heroes you you're really satisfied with exactly how you look i mean i would like to believe that i am totally satisfied with how i look and that i don't necessarily have to meet my heroes because my ego is satisfied but that would be a lie you know I, i i do want those things so um i mean to to stay on that a little bit longer does uh, yeah? How are you interrogating that? Perhaps we should we should go there. And and, and I guess you were talking about interrogating gay misogyny, um, which is another thing that I don't know anything about, and also strikes me as um, not quite like that statement, but strikes me as um, as a completely different perspective. Mm. Well, I think you're right. You know, firstly, uh, and I think. You know, I think it's very cool to to be someone who alleges that, you know, you don't care about beauty or you don't care about meeting your heroes uh, or you don't watch reality TV or, you know, any or you do, but you're like self-aware about it or any number of things. I think it's very cool to sort of adopt that perspective, um, but it's not really something that that I can do or that really people who I like to hang out with do, you know, I think the key to sort of um, thinking through a lot of this is um, fandom, you know, like being a fan. I mean, so much of being in the art world is sort of being, you know, hopefully having the privilege to be around people who you're a fan of and getting to interact with them in some way. And I think, I think we, we tend to either stand away from these things and people with a, a sort of academic remove um, or a certain critical remove, you know, for fear of being seen as, um, you know, a groupie, um, which is always sort of gendered female, you know, per the misogyny conversation. But you know, irrespective of sort of an intellectual way of approaching it, I just reached a certain point where I felt like I wanted to be very, um, 
I didn't want to be embarrassed anymore that so much of my work has to do with meeting my heroes and so much of it has to do with um, sort of looking up to people, being obsessed with people, um, you know, being starstruck by people. Um, I think that is so interesting and fun. And I think there's a lot of shame around that in academia and in sort of, um, you know, art criticism circles. I mean, you know, being, uh, I, since we last spoke, I, I dropped out of my PhD program um, in part because of homophobia I experienced from the faculty, um, but also because of this general state of not necessarily wanting to exist constantly um, at a degree of remove from from the, the people and movements um, and art objects um, that I was studying. Um, and I think also, you know, that remove or that sort of um, critical stance, the stance of the critic, of the historian, what have you, you know, there is sort of a masculine um, sort of disapproval for, you know, being a fan, you know, wanting to be glamorous, wanting to be around amazing people. They're all kind of gendered as these feminine, uh, superficial things, you know. Instagram, you know, being into Instagram or, you know, social media generally, um, reality TV, you know, trashy books, whatever. There is this sort of feminization of, you know, certain ways of approaching um, culture. Um, and sorry to go off on a tangent, but that, that just sort of jumped to mind when you, uh, what you were saying about, um, you know, uh, yeah, what is what you said in terms of, you know, that there are just such drastically um, different ways of approaching the world. And I think, you know, sort of giving in, as it were, or, or honoring those, those multiple ways of being in the world. And I think one of those is, you know, just being uh, very open about being, um, you know, I mean, about... Uh, how amazing it is to meet your heroes and write about them and, and the privilege that, that comes from, you know, existing in the art world. Um, and, you know, I, I think all of that connects in an interesting way to gender. Again, because fandom is, you know, very much gendered as, as feminine. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think... You know, my my education, uh, you know, when I when I was doing my undergrad, uh, I really found a lot uh, of mm, sort of intellectual and emotional um, support that I wasn't finding in our history department, in the gender studies department, and most of my, you know, um, coursework in that vein was sort of like a hard line kind of second wave feminist informed sort of um, viewpoint that I think a lot of people find retrograde now. Um, but I'm very glad I did because it instilled in me, you know, the centrality of feminism to, you know, global human rights movements generally um, and sort of a desire to keep that from being um, erased. Um, and since, since we're getting 
deep, you know, I think gay men generally, well, I'll just say myself, I think I worry a lot about my intersection with misogyny. And so I, I try to address it where I can. Um, and I guess I'm hoping I'm doing that by sort of um, uh, offering one way of sort of just honoring the way that you individually want to relate to culture, you know, and hopefully that'll, people will be inspired to sort of think through new ways of, of how one can relate to culture. Um, that sounds very grandiose, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, I wanted to write about Jessica Lang, so I did. <laughs> I like that. You get to do what you want, and uh and I like tangents. This is this is great talking to you about this. I, I I have another passage I want to read, but before I do that, to to step back a little bit, um, this book was written uh, several years ago, uh, and you're you're revisiting it now. Uh, how 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 has that been to revisit this? And 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 it seems like so much has changed in the world since then, and and maybe so much hasn't changed. But when you look at this text, this text that you wrote uh, as a sophomore in 2019, 2020, um, how did it strike you? I mean, in, in, in terms of the kind of revisit to this, this, this current book that we're talking about, um, how did it change? Because you you adjusted it, right? You changed it. This is this is a kind of reinterpreted for, in some sense, the world we're in now. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I think, um, in a, in a sense, you know, nothing changed because you know, um, I still, I think I'm. I think we're all sort of driven by similar things as, as we're driven by when we're young. Um, and I think I wanted to sort of um, authorize, you know, taking that seriously, you know, like being boy crazy or girl crazy or people crazy or whatever, or being dramatic or liking something that we'd look back on and think was quaint or, you know, having bad taste in music or whatever, you know, all those things inform you. And I guess I wanted to sort of show how that remains constant. Um, but as you suggest, you know, um, everything is different. Um, you know, since I first wrote Queer Formalism, I mean, uh, you know, it's pretty it's pretty amazing our, our, our capacity for, for change simultaneously. Um I think you know uh, that that first um iteration of queer formalism came in a state where, you know, I was very physically unwell, but also, you know, I had been dealing with depression, it would result in a suicide attempt. You know, it was it was a period of my life where I felt like I was being very productive and very, uh, you know, thinking through some interesting things, but I was not happy. Um, and I think, you know, I'm I'm approaching 
a place where, you know, happiness could be, you know, a term that, that I uh, throw around. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, you know, I, I did want to say something about how our, the moments in our life when we, that we really cringe to think about or we don't want to think about or that we might find embarrassing or that other people told us were embarrassing, sometimes we do our best work then. And, and that doesn't mean that we need to be um, in a constant state of trauma, you know, in order to produce um, interesting work. Um, it's just to say that, <clears throat> you know, uh, we, we can work through those moments. And, and even when, I mean, when I first wrote that, I didn't really think anything of it. Um, but it, it did resonate with people, and that was really surprising to me. Um, and, and the reception of the book has been really um, surprising to me as well. Um, so it's just to say that, that sometimes when it doesn't seem like it's all aligning, you know, you, you can be doing your best work then. But again, you know, it, you know we, we don't want to um, mythologize the, you know, the you know, the depressed artists, the struggling artists, what have you, um, because then we're just sort of fetishizing sorrow in a way that's not very helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the things that I was interested in in 2012, 2013, whenever I wrote that, you know, I'm, are still my driving interest now. And I think I want everyone to sort of feel authorized to, to feel that way because, you know, the thing about academia and in a certain sense, art criticism, too, is that, you know, you're not really understood to be producing meaningful discourse, scholarship, criticism, you know, until you're, until you have a PhD or until, you know, you're of a certain age or whatever. Um, and I think that does everyone a disservice in every um, discipline, because when you're a freshman in college or sophomore in college or you know, even in high school, whatever, at any point, you, could, you can have some major ideas, but maybe there wasn't anyone there to tell you that it was interesting. And I think that was the case for me. And I, uh, you know, I guess I wanted to offer an example of, you know, just, just taking those instincts very seriously, even when you don't feel like you are experienced enough. I like that. Um, and I'm, and I'm glad that, the, you know, the, the book sounds like the book's been received well. And, and there's, I think this fits into a bit of what we're talking about here, this, this last thought of mine and this, this bit I want to read because, you know, I'm reading this book and I'm dog-earing it to, to have a, you know, a, a conversation with you. And while I like the ideas and that's what I'm kind of underlining and and, and, and trying to remember, what drew me in most to your writing was um, was things that were very personal and um, and and for me separates it from from other writings that that might venture onto the same topics but but don't kind of um, get as in, in a sense not just self-reflective as you do, but have a way of 
Um, well, let, let me just read this. Um, it's short. On November 9, 2017, I attended the feminist author Kate Knight's funeral in New York, even though I had never met her. The Upper East Side was that steely gray color the city takes on when threatened by snow. I spent the duration of the memorial thinking about myself. My life seemed entirely strange to me as if I no longer owned it. Instead of reflecting on the tragedy of Kate's passing, I wondered how I had come to be in that place at that time, as insignificant as I was and remain, how little of it I deserved, how unlikely it was that works like Notes on Queer Feminism would withstand the storms of history. What I do remember regarding someone other than myself was Kate's sister recalling that Kate always talked to children as she would to adults, something I have never been able to do without worrying that they will think me stodgy or perhaps even fraudulent, a mere image with no substance even. I remember being a college student, newly gay, eyes opened, and life changed by reading sexual politics, and I posit that Kate, too, may have found me dull if I had met her while she was alive. I think that's a very beautiful piece of writing, William. And, um, and uh, you know, it's part of perhaps your style, how, who you are, but, but also it's the kind of thing that, um, I mean, without being too grandiose, makes you a bit of a hero to me. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a way of sharing something of yourself that stands you know, so outside some of what's happened in the books in terms of its kind of um, theories and ideas that it draws the reader in, in a way that's, um, that, that, you know, I think, oh my God, Christ, you know, I've, I've been there. I am that. I've, I've been at, I've been at funerals thinking about things like this. It's such a lovely piece of writing. So, so, you know, and also at the same time, it's not that it's sad because we all have some aspect of that and, and I certainly relate to that. So to, to, to reflect on that, maybe in formal terms, um, about how, how something like that fits into a book like this, which, um, as you said, is getting a good reception, um, I, I imagine, among artists, critics, uh, theorists, yet this is a part of it that is um, is so personal and 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 touching and 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 draws the reader in or certainly draws me in um, and I imagine others in a way that's um, that, that, you know like a good novel so so without being kind of overboard here <laughs> in my kind of excitement about that piece of writing and in in the context of this book. Um, how do you feel that that, that, that that kind of fits or helps the text in a way? How is that part of this? You know, to me, it's part of it because, wow, you know, this guy's uh, a great writer, a great thinker, and he's also um, able to to be vulnerable, which which draws me in. But it, but it doesn't necessarily add something to 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 the kind of formalism that you're trying to to talk about you know it's it's a it's almost like a uh literary technique um i don't know i, I maybe i'm messing this all up but but yeah what, what do you think about that how that writing fits into something like this book well first of all thank you that's that's very meaningful and i do think 
you know, I, I'm glad that it resonated with you because I've always sort of um, really appreciated your, you know, your very empathetic um, approach, you know, in our in our conversations. Um, so that's very meaningful. Um, I think I would answer that by saying that <clears throat> um, I wanted to get across that all art criticism is autobiography, that all writing is autobiography generally, um, because I, 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 I've grown weary, and I think a lot of other people have, of, of a certain kind of um, both art writing and, and sort of narrative nonfiction generally, of overeducated people who, you know, are essentially just writing memoirs, but with references to like Lacan or whatever, you know, and right. I think some people do that well, but in, in all, I find it boring because it's, it's more sort of a signaling of one's elite education, which, you know, I did it. I do in my work sometimes too. And sometimes you can't get around it just by virtue of what references you're making. But I guess I wanted to get across the point that all writing is autobiography and that, you know, again, we don't necessarily need to have that critical remove. Um, you know, that event that, that you're referencing, the, the funeral, it was, it was very sad. And I, you know, I thought it was an interesting story to recount because Kate Millett is sort of this, you know, iconic figure um, of, of feminist theory and, you know, an extraordinarily erudite person and thinker and what have you. But, you know, she was a person, you know, who, uh, you know, she has another book called The Looney Bin Trip that's great um, about her sort of sojourn in a, in a mental hospital. Um, but, you know, that book in particular really sort of exposes her humanity in a certain sense. Um, and so, yeah, in a certain sense, you know, even her book, Sexual Politics, which is kind of, it's, it's not a, a generalist layman's read. It's, it's hard to get through, you know. Even that is, is a memoir of sorts. You know, all these towering works of theory um, are memoirs of sorts. And, and it would have been really easy to sort of relate to it in that way, to sort of uh, intellectualize, you know, um, being at her funeral um, and, and sort of, uh, I, I could see a very, you know, trendy, you know, sort of essay that, that that could look like, but I was very sad and I was very self-conscious. And, you know, like you were saying, my, I, I, I find it so um, important to immerse yourself in writing that, that, that gives you, um, you know, that, that, that helps you feel empowered to, to feel the emotions that, that you feel, you know, and, and that's what I want to be able to do, um, you know, because I know that, you know, the other thing, you know, part and parcel of everything autobiography is that everyone has felt everything before, you know, it's not like you can narrate entirely new experience that nobody has ever felt. I mean, you could, you could get into some kind of like, I, I'm sure there's, you know, a response to a categorical statement like that. But the point 
is rather than saying everything's already felt before, almost in a Warholian fashion, that everything's up for grabs, kind of a, you know, postmodern ennui, you know, you can look at that and say, you know, everything I have felt, there is an element of, of empathy to be had or, or connectivity with somebody else. And, you know, explaining that or, or relaying it in, in melodramatic terms, I think that passage is very melodramatic and I, and I wanted it to be that way because that's going to connect with somebody and it might not connect to someone who expected, you know, sort of an intellectual history of contemporary painting or, or a very, you know, um, or, 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 or something deep being said about Kate Millett or whatever. You know, it might disappoint somebody who's approaching it that way, but, you know, I think that melodramatic element that I was kind of trying out there, it, it does get at something that, yeah, people can hopefully identify with. Um, because, you know, there is so much fear around identification, you know, um, sort of being too close to somebody or something or, you know, um, but or, or a fear of universality, you know, a sort of, presumption again that you know there is some sort of universal emotion or universal response to something but there are some points of of intersection and I guess I'm trying to get at what those are and so to answer your question finally I think you know all art criticism is merely a record of one's own personal interests um you know, sometimes one's community-oriented interests, but, you know, there is no, there is no objectivity. Um, there is no sort of, um, you know, one way of writing being better than another. You know, it's just a record of what you're into, um, you know. Um, and, and I guess I just wanted to be very upfront about that and sort of... Um, hack away at the, at the shame a bit surrounding that. I like that. It's, it's a congratulations on this book. I, I love talking to you about it as I, as I uh, have in the past interviews, but, but thank you for that. And um, before we go, I want to ask you one more question, which is off topic, but what are, what are you reading at the moment? You know, I have like three books that I'm like a quarter of the way through, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I am rereading Kate Millett's uh, Sexual Politics because um, she's going to be having a show, um, you know, posthumously, of course, of, of her sculptures at Salon 94 in New York in January. Um, and, and I wrote the, the text to sort of go along with that. But um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to finish now, okay, so I'm going to, I'm halfway through The Lost Daughter by Elena Ferrante. Um, and it's great. Um, and then I'm going to start The Power of the Dog, um, which is the source material for the movie that Kristen Dunst is in um, on Netflix. Um, you know, my, my friend uh, Emily, who I mentioned earlier tonight, we have this sort of joke about buying the movie tie-in versions of, like, every book, uh, which is in itself very kitschy. But, um, yeah, I'm in, like, a movie tie-in sort of moment because Lost Daughter is now a movie that um, 
Maggie Gyllenhaal directed. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'll finish any of them because, you know, honestly, since about the time I wrote Queer Formalism the first time, it's really hard for me to get through a book just because I'm, like, so distracted. But um, I think I'm going to make it through The Lost Daughter because it's very scandalous, very tantalizing. Um, yeah. And in terms of other texts, I'm working through The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, and it's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, William. Uh, again, um, yeah, thank you for um, for talking to me about this book. There's links here if uh, if people would like to have it themselves. And uh, again, I want to thank you so much, William, for your for your time and this work. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>